It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, July 31st, 2023. I'm Lisa Brady. What's known as Trank, or the zombie drug, is showing up in more overdoses across America, sometimes mixed with fentanyl. That combination is extremely dangerous. This is a tremendously dangerous drug supply that's on the black market now. I'm Chris Foster. Walmart is still the biggest retailer in America in a battle for dominance against Amazon. And Amazon has ever-growing ambitions. I think a huge part of their long-term strategy has been not just selling every physical product under the sun, uh, which is a a legitimate goal of theirs, but also to uh, have consumers, people in their everyday lives, really turn to Amazon for just about any need or desire they might have. And I'm Kevin Walling. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The opioid epidemic has fueled a nationwide fight against fentanyl, increasingly focused not only on drug dealers and cartels, but on China. Don't think for a second China doesn't know what they're doing when they send it over. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley making it a campaign issue in New Hampshire. The Drug Enforcement Administration says the vast majority of fentanyl trafficked in the U.S. is from cartels in Mexico using chemicals largely sourced from China. In my community, every day, we are losing young people, families are getting shattered, and the data and the evidence are clear. The Chinese Communist Party is a huge, huge part of this problem. New York Democratic Congressman Pat Ryan is one of the co-sponsors of a bill that would change the definition of foreign opioid trafficker, potentially allowing sanctions on Chinese entities and government officials. But while the fentanyl fight continues, drug dealers keep working on new ways to make more money. Took him out by ambulance. Loretta Mazzoni lost her son Dylan to an overdose in December after he bought what he thought was heroin in a Philadelphia neighborhood hit hard by Trank, or the zombie drug, xylazine. That and fentanyl were laced in. The Narcan wasn't working, and they tried to resuscitate him, and, um, and he died like within 15 minutes after he got to the hospital. This spring, the DEA issued a warning to the public about a sharp increase in fentanyl mixed with xylazine, the White House declaring it an emerging threat and announcing a national strategy to reduce overdose deaths. The CDC says the number of fatal opioid overdoses where xylazine was detected jumped more than 270 percent between January of 2019 and June of last year. Xylazine is a sedative, and it's a very potent sedative because it's intended for use on large animals uh, to basically knock them out before surgery. Bridget Brennan is the special narcotics prosecutor for New York City. When I say large animals, it would be like horses and, and that kind of an animal. So it's very powerful. But the other thing about it is that it was never intended for use by human beings. So it has terrible side effects with humans. It causes uh, gaping wounds, ulcerated wounds on the skin, and can cause so much damage that limbs have to be amputated. 
And it, it's not even approved for use in humans, right? Absolutely. So how did it become a, a street drug? Did people start raiding veterinarians' offices or is this all about the drug dealers? It's all about the drug dealers. From what we can tell, it was introduced into the market by drug dealers who were mixing it in with fentanyl. The first signs we saw of it were in uh, the Philadelphia area. That's the first concentrated use we saw of it. It's hard to know exactly how it got into the, um, the drug market, though. What does this do to the existing drug epidemic, especially the high number of fentanyl overdose deaths um, around the country? How, how fast is this problem growing? Well, we've seen it expand, as I say, initially we saw it strictly in the uh, Pennsylvania area, and we saw it somewhat in uh, some other areas of the East, but now we've seen it uh, expand here in New York. We're seeing it more frequently. It's involved in 20% of our overdoses now, and it has higher concentrations in some neighborhoods than others. So it is really becoming um, a significant factor. What we see and, and what the big problem is, uh, one of the big problems with xylazine is that, that it's a sedative and not an opioid, uh, which is what fentanyl is. And Narcan, which can reverse an overdose, is effective only on opioids. So if you have that mixture of fentanyl and xylazine or fentanyl cocaine and xylazine, and someone tries to revive uh, someone who's overdosing with Narcan, if xylazine's there, it's not gonna work. And because it's a sedative, it suppresses breathing, heart rate, et cetera, just as fentanyl does. Fentanyl is very, very powerful, more powerful than xylazine, uh, but it is also very fast acting. And one of the great dangers of fentanyl is that it acts so quickly that a person can stop breathing before they even know they're struggling for breath or before anybody around them realizes that they're in really bad straits. And so that combination is extremely dangerous. This is a tremendously dangerous drug supply that's on the black market now. How does this fold into New York City's drug fighting strategy and for you, as a prosecutor, it certainly doesn't sound like it, you know, makes only makes it worse. It absolutely makes it worse. Fentanyl is uh, probably the most dangerous drug that I've seen in the years I've been doing this kind of work because it acts so quickly and there's such a small amount that can be lethal. And now it is so infiltrating our drug supply. People who buy cocaine may well get fentanyl and they may get fentanyl laced with xylazine. Uh, so it makes it a very, very difficult time to be doing this kind of work. And I applaud the efforts uh, that are going on now on the federal level, both to work with China, uh, because that country appears to be supplying the uh, chemicals that are used to make fentanyl in Mexico, make uh, fentanyl by the cartels. And that's what's coming up to the U.S. So those efforts are great, and I hope they're successful. Uh, the government is also looking at uh, establishing controls on the distribution of xylazine here in the U.S. Right now, it's not a controlled substance, and they're looking at scheduling it because it is now a drug of abuse. Uh, and so we'll see how that all plays out. But those efforts will really help us. The other thing that's going on is federal legislation, which would um, 
which would allow us to seize the assets of those companies that are distributing legitimate drugs and are uh, accumulating profits here in the U.S., but they're also distributing the chemicals that are used to make fentanyl in Mexico. And that would be very helpful, too, because it's all about money. And whether it's a company that's manufacturing chemicals in China or the cartels, it's all about the money or, frankly, the local drug dealers that you see on the street. That's all they care about. So if you can take that out of it or really hurt them that way, that's a very effective strategy. Not just at the federal level, but also I know in some areas at the state level, there's talk of making xylazine a Schedule Three drug, a controlled substance. How much does that help you as a as a prosecutor? And I ask that in part because some advocacy groups have said it doesn't really help to reduce overdoses. You know, when a drug is labeled as a controlled substance. Uh, I. I- I would disagree with that. It helps to reduce overdoses because it allows you to pinch off the supply of drugs that are killing people. And that xylazine mixed with fentanyl has caused a real spike in overdose deaths. And so if you can track the supply of it and you can limit the supply of it, you're certainly going to reduce deaths. I mean, look, there are people who believe that all drugs should be legalized and they don't think anything anybody is able to do is going to have any effect. Um, And, you know, obviously I don't fall into that category. Uh, But I think it it would be an effective strategy. I think the state by state strategy is less effective because obviously if it's illegal or controlled, I should say, only in one state and not controlled in the neighboring state, well, then uh, somebody just gets a supply elsewhere. Where do test strips maybe fit into the xylazine problem? Obviously, in some states, fentanyl test strips have been decriminalized, no longer considered drug paraphernalia. But even for the fentanyl test strips, that's not everywhere. Yeah, you know, and I've heard of xylazine test strips, too. And look, if they uh, help, if they're going to reduce the number of deaths, uh, I'm certainly supportive of that. Problem is that you know, the way they have to be used in order to be reliable um, requires the testing of the substance that's going to be used. So if it's a strip, the substance, whatever it is, probably has to be, if it's a pill, it has to be crushed and diluted and then tested, or maybe it can be tested, the powder itself can be tested, and then the same substance has been, uh, would have to be used. But one of the things that people need to realize is that there is absolutely no quality control when it comes to making these drugs, whether it's uh, making the pills or packaging the powders uh, that are sold on the street. One bag isn't like the next, one pill isn't like the next. There's no control. Uh, And so you may test one pill and it doesn't come out having any fentanyl or xylazine in it, and the one that you bought alongside it does. Uh, And so, uh, you know, look, anything that's gonna reduce deaths, I'm all for it, but people need to understand the limits, the limitations of these strategies. There's, this seems to be something that really complicates you know, life for doctors and first responders, too, when they're trying to help people who are overdosing because you don't know now if someone is just having a fentanyl overdose where Narcan could be effective or if xylazine's in the mix and then maybe Narcan isn't effective. Is it true every time that Narcan doesn't work or does it depend on the level of xylazine? 
No, with xylazine, it'll never work because what Narcan does is that it um, addresses the opioid receptors in the brain. And so only an opioid like fentanyl ha- you know, affects the brain in that way. The sedative uh, affects the body differently. And so Narcan is just ineffective. But there are, are other ways to uh, address an overdose and only medical experts have this available. Uh, but they do use oxygen. In fact, often that's the primary thing they do is to get the breathing going again, immediately use oxygen uh, in order to revive somebody who is suffering from an overdose. And so they still have effective strategies. And even if you're going to use Narcan, if you're in a situation and somebody is overdosing or you believe somebody is overdosing and you use Narcan and they're not being revived, you should already uh, be calling for assistance because there are other strategies. uh, There are other remedies that can be used that might save a life. The White House did announce a national strategy recently about xylazine. Um, it includes testing, treatment, research. What would be, from, from your perspective as a, as a prosecutor, what would be the most effective steps based on what's been done and learned so far in the opioid crisis? Well, I think the mo- look, the number one most effective thing I think we can do is get uh, good, effective information out to the public and to young people. So they'll know what these drugs are all about. I think uh, some kind of a very thoughtful and targeted uh, prevention campaign is long overdue. Uh, But the strategies that would help just in terms of the work that we do is anything that can help identify a source of supply or limit the source of supply or help us take the money, the profit, out of dealing drugs, out of making drugs, out of distributing drugs. That is what I think would be very helpful. Special Narcotics Prosecutor for New York City, Bridget Brennan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Kevin Walling with your Fox News commentary coming up. In 1998, Walmart had just had its first year with $100 billion in sales. It was about to become the largest private employer in the United States. 1998 was the first year Amazon started selling anything other than books. 25 years later, of course, it sells nearly everything, slugging it out with Walmart for retail dominance. Walmart's still number one and maybe could have crushed Amazon early on. Not only did they have sort of the purchasing power, logistics prowess, they also had the talent. Jason Del Rey is a business journalist and author of Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets a small team that was very much interested in e-commerce and had been experimenting with selling online. And part of that team, I guess, disenchanted with the lack of progress there, just jumped ship, right? They went to Amazon. 
Yeah, that's true. There were a few people, but one in particular, an employee named Robert Davis, he loved Walmart, really thought he would spend the rest of his career there, but he loved what the future of retail could look like online, maybe even more. And after asking the CEO of Walmart for sort of a bigger commitment to online retail and e-commerce inside the company and not getting what he wanted, he also did jump ship and headed to Seattle where he spent over a decade at Amazon. Go back before the book, just very briefly, how did Walmart get to become Walmart? Their mass format stores, those didn't exist until several decades in. But essentially, you know, they went into small rural towns with uh, only mom and pop shops and they sort of developed bigger stores. They were really frugal in how they operated their business, everything from squeezing vendors to squeezing pay for employees. And um, they started making a name for themselves. Then they developed the super center. They eventually get into the grocery business. Now they are the biggest grocer in the US by revenue. And they start just steamrolling through towns across the US, um, started in Arkansas, but um, expanding now all over. Just talk about a couple of things that maybe give one win and one loss to each of them over the last 25 years, that the times where they jockeyed for position and, and outdid the other. Walmart still is to an extent, but was a really big book player uh, in the industry. And Amazon obviously changed all that with not only sale of print books where they started, but also uh, the Kindle and the ebook market as well. On the loss side for Amazon, and, and this sort of dovetails with the Walmart win, Amazon's been very unsuccessful in the grocery space. Uh, yes, they bought Whole Foods, uh, for over $13 billion back in 2017. That deal has not lived up to what they expected or, or what Wall Street expected. They're also dabbling with their own mass market grocery stores called Amazon Fresh. Those are on pause now because they have not found a successful recipe. So that's an area where they've really struggled and where Walmart has long excelled. And just on the Walmart failing piece, I think for decades, Walmart failed to use their super centers as the advantage Amazon feared they'd become. You mentioned Amazon Prime. And one thing that Amazon does, it broadly tries to just keep consumers into in its ecosystem with the Prime program and home devices and like you said, groceries and prescription drug plans. And now there's a new phone plan. How much of their strategy just is about that as opposed to you know selling individual things oh i think a huge part of their long-term strategy has been not just selling every physical product under the sun uh, which is a, a legitimate goal of theirs but also to uh, have consumers people in their everyday lives really turn to amazon for just about any need or desire they might have you know that comes from this idea that Jeff Bezos and the leadership team there have long believed, which is that Amazon isn't just a retailer. They maybe aren't just a technology company, but they are a customer obsessed innovation company. And if there's a market where customers are not treated well or not as well as they should be, Amazon believes they don't always follow through on this successfully, but they believe they can play a role in that market. I mean, as consumers, we think of Amazon primarily as a, you know, a retail outfit, but it's, it's a lot, a lot more than that. And I mean, could it ever dial back on the retail business and 
put more focus on its business and government product. I'm hesitant to say that I think they'll dial back on retail. I think there is a world in which other business units, as we've seen, become more and more profitable. So the ones I'm thinking of, Amazon Web Services, which essentially their cloud computing unit that powers vast parts of the web instead of having to get computer servers, you can now just sort of lease this digital space from Amazon. Uh, That is one. Their advertising business is almost $40 billion in revenue a year now. That is hugely profitable. So I think they'll keep investing while making sure retail stays really competitive. I ask about retail because the barriers to entry there are obviously a lot lower than something like the cloud computing stuff. It's hard to jump in at this point, I guess. It'll be hard to compete with brick and mortar in Walmart. But all the time, we're seeing new online retailers try to take a chunk of that marketplace. That's absolutely true. What I would say, though, is Amazon has built some barriers in a variety of ways that manifest themselves in the largest selection of products you could you could find online, at least in the Western world. The Prime program, the convenience that comes with it, in many regions, you know, you could get overnight or same-day delivery through Prime. Uh, that manifests itself in a lot of Prime members not price comparing as much as they might have if they were not Prime members. So Prime is incredibly sticky. The marketplace of hundreds of thousands of merchants leads to selection that is kind of unmatched. So while there are, you know, there can be new players, we are seeing these sort of insurgents of China-based apps like Timu and Xi'an and TikTok now getting into commerce in a big way. While those are you know, competitors, th- there is some barrier to entry because of the success of Prime and, and the marketplace of hundreds of thousands of Amazon sellers. I mean, Amazon is criticized for, you know, using its own third party sellers data against them to maybe, you know, undercut their prices, et cetera. On the bright side, are there small businesses that Amazon is really helping that they, they could not have the reach that they have or the sales that they have without Amazon, even if they're giving up a cut? Absolutely. While there are a lot of complaints and some who feel Amazon treats them very unfairly with, you know, now it's essentially pay to play that you have to advertise to get discovered. I've talked to many others who say this life I'm living, like it was impossible before Amazon. You know, I can order a product from a supplier overseas. I can have it delivered straight to an Amazon warehouse. I can have Amazon pack it, ship it, and handle customer service. And I never touched this product. And, you know, I'm just making decisions about uh, which products to sell and maybe how to advertise them. And that's about it. I mean, there are people that don't want to shop on Amazon or at Walmart because, look, I mean, if you shop, the impact to local economy is obviously a lot stronger if you shop local and smaller. But look, you get sucked in because the prices are better. Maybe the customer service is better. It's easier to return stuff. What do you tell people, you know, friends, whoever, family, who say, look, I don't want to shop at these places, but I can't give it up. What we do in our household is we really try to just think about, do we need that thing the next day or the day after? And also, you know, is there a better option perhaps somewhere locally that could be just as convenient if we, you know, walk 10 blocks down? And, you know, for the business owners, I think there's a couple of things. If you're selling products that Amazon and Walmart do, a couple of things you could do to stand out, or at least, you know, I've learned over the years. One is really great curation. So while you may sell stuff that can be found online, the way you present it, the way you merchandise it, you know, sort of 
core retail old school tenants, like those still matter to some people. Another is amazing service. So local store in my town, gift shop. I was talking to the owner there. He had four or five employees working on a given day. Now, you know, you have to be able to afford that, obviously, but he tries to stand out through amazing in-person service. And so very difficult for a lot of physical businesses today, but these are just a couple of things that I think successful brick and mortar shops have done to still exist, if not thrive. I find just because you you cover this stuff more broadly, what's happening with retail real estate, the big, big places that you know, maybe used to be a, I don't know, a Sears or a Macy's or whatever. What happens to those big stores that are just sitting abandoned in towns across America? Yeah, I've written about this a bit. Some of these, you know, they call them in a mall, an anchor tenant. We've seen a lot of these malls uh, all across the country sort of get redeveloped in a couple of ways. Some Some just get knocked down and turned into residential condo units or something to that like. But we're seeing a lot of mixed use properties where part residential, part entertainment, and maybe, yes, some part retail as well. We're seeing sort of, you know, a Dave and Buster's type entertainment center move in as a new anchor tenant. Some malls are switching to, you know, trying to become food scenes. So bringing in some interesting up and coming fast casual chains and the like. And then, of course, in New Jersey, we have a place like American Dream that uh, has indoor water park, amusement park, ski slope, the list goes on and on. Look, history's littered with the corpses of these behemoth companies like Sears or Kodak or Xerox or whatever that now are just, you know, essentially memories. Can you foresee any missteps so big or, you know, so numerous that we ever talk about that, talk about Amazon or Walmart that way in 50 years? I think it's possible. I think just a couple of quick reasons. On the Amazon side, they're really at this inflection point where they've had the largest corporate layoffs in their history, a CEO change in the last two years. And I believe the Federal Trade Commission close to dropping a antitrust lawsuit against them. If they were to be forced to break up into different parts for some reason, that could change their future in, in countless ways. On, on the Walmart side, you know, their current CEO, when he took over in 2014, his name is Doug McMillan. He saw Amazon as such an existential threat if Walmart didn't get their game uh, together online that he thought there was a real world where they, Walmart wouldn't exist because of Amazon a couple of decades from now. They've made some ground up, but he won't be the CEO forever. And so, you know, there are open questions about both of them. Still sounds crazy to think of a world or at least a retail world without them. But again, as you pointed out, Sears was the behemoth one day and um, that's not the case anymore. The book is called Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart and the Battle for Our Wallets. The author, my guest right now, Jason Delray. Jason, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, Hunter Biden's business partner, Devin Archer, is expected to be interviewed by the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin wraps up visits to Papua New Guinea and Australia, and a trial is slated to begin on a lawsuit against Tesla over the death of an Apple engineer in 2018. It's over its autopilot feature, 
Tesla denies responsibility, saying the driver was not paying attention to vehicle warnings while he was playing a video game on his phone. Wednesday, Pope Francis meets with Portugal's president in Lisbon. Thursday brings the trial against actor Jonathan Majors for domestic assault. Majors is known for playing villain Kang the Conqueror in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the 36th world's longest yard sale runs through Sunday in six states. It stretches 690 miles. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Tom Graham, Fox News. Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Kevin Walling. What's on your mind? Since George Washington's unanimous election 234 years ago, no third-party candidate has ever won a presidential election. In fact, George Wallace, the infamous segregationist and governor of Alabama, was the last non-major party candidate to win a single electoral vote. He won 45 of them in 1968. That was 55 years ago. Yet throughout our history, third-party candidates have been very successful at one thing, ensuring that they take enough votes from one party to throw the election to the other. In 1912, Theodore Roosevelt became unhappy with his hand-picked successor, President William Howard Taft, and decided to challenge him in the general election from the Progressive Party. The result? Democrat Woodrow Wilson won and became only the second Democrat elected to the presidency since 1861. In more recent times, third-party efforts have derailed the hopes of both parties. Bill Clinton likely owes his 1992 election to the efforts of Ross Perot, who secured 19% of the popular vote against incumbent George H.W. Bush. More recently, we saw a similar dynamic with also-rans Ralph Nader and Jill Stein in 2000 and 2016, respectively. But this year, no label seems poised to do something neither Democrats nor Republicans want, becoming the most recent third-party effort to spoil a presidential election. I'm not an outsider or casual observer when it comes to no labels. In fact, I helped launch the organization in 2010 and served as its first national field director. Early on, No Labels served an important function during the rise of the Tea Party at a time when intra-party primary challenges targeted consensus builders. Here was a group of Americans who were pushing back on the increasing bitterness in our national discourse, and I was all in. In the years that followed this early success, No Labels veered dramatically from its original founding principles by engaging directly in campaigns. They began endorsing partisan candidates in general elections, picking one party over the other, all under the auspices of bipartisanship. More recently, No Labels has started setting up state political organizations to get ballot access for a yet unnamed third-party candidate. They released a 63-page common-sense platform to much media fanfare in New Hampshire filled with inoffensive and bland policy positions. Though much can change before November 2024, it appears we are headed to a rematch between former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden. And while all elections are important, the 2024 stakes are once again sky high for both parties, not to mention the long-term viability of our country. In keeping with their founding mission, no label should drop their third-party bid and instead support the true bipartisan candidate in this race, Joe Biden. 
Time and time again, the incumbent president has delivered on sweeping bipartisan legislation to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, spur an economic and manufacturing boom with the Chips and Science Act, protect the rights of same-sex couples and religious liberty, and the first federal gun control measure in decades. Just last month, President Biden worked with the GOP majority in the House to pass the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, a major bipartisan compromise that both lifted the debt ceiling and cut spending. I fully support fighting back against the extremes in our politics and finding bipartisan consensus where possible, and that's why I support Joe Biden. Publishing meaningless policy statements, setting up state parties, tricking innocent voters into signing on to their effort, and trafficking in the notion that both Biden and Trump are equal makes a mockery of No Label's founding principles. I'm Kevin Walling, Democratic campaign strategist. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.